Good morning, and welcome to Our American Heritage. I am Arch Hunter, the host of the program. Our American Heritage is a program where we explore in depth the American experience from its beginning to the present. And today we want to welcome as our guest, Michael Harris. Michael, welcome to the program, and thank you for coming. Thanks for having me, Arch. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. Listeners, Michael Harris is a graduate of the University of Mary Washington and the American Military University. He has been a National Park Ranger at Fredericksburg, Fort Mott State Park in New Jersey and Pennsylvania at Brandywine. And he is a public school teacher in the Philadelphia area. He has a lovely wife and a very nice son. And listeners, his book on Brandywine and Germantown are the Bibles of both. And when I read Michael's first book a couple of years ago, I was just astounded at the expertise and the knowledge and the historianship that's there. So, Michael, would you share with our listeners a little bit of your background that you can get right into your topic for today? Yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, you kind of nailed my background, but uh, to get at least a little bit more specific, from 2005 to 2009, I worked at Brandywine Battlefield State Historic Site. And while my job title was museum educator, I was also responsible for the research at the site. And what was sort of astounding to me, having worked at other military sites prior to that, is that there really wasn't a book or a go-to source for the Battle of Brandywine. There's a lot of books out there that might have a chapter on the battle, but there really wasn't a go-to. There was one written around the year 2000, but it's chock full of myth, and it wasn't really a reliable source. There was another one written around the time of the Bicentennial, which actually is not bad for its age. It's just it's really hard to find a copy. So there really wasn't anything when I started there. And so initially, my research was based on research inquiries that came into the park, and I was just digging up to see what I could find to answer questions for people that contacted the park. And it just sort of mushroomed from there and eventually became my book that came out in 2014. But then, you know, just a little bit about the battle, and then I'm sure Arch will have some follow-up questions. But basically, the Battle of Brandywine was all about preventing British access to Philadelphia. 1777, William Howe's plan, him being the commander of the British forces in North America, was to capture the city of Philadelphia, the American capital. And, you know, at least in European terms of warfare, if you capture your enemy's capital, in theory, you win the war. It wasn't exactly going to work here in North America, but that was the mindset of why we're going to go get Philadelphia. And William Howe, rather than march overland from the New York City area to the Delaware River and ultimately Philadelphia, uses British naval power to move a sizable portion of his army, about 18,000 personnel, on a pretty long sea voyage, ultimately around the Delmarva Peninsula and up the Chesapeake Bay. It's going to take about six weeks in total. And then late August 1777, they offload in northeastern Maryland and start moving north. And Washington needs to get himself into a blocking position. So the British Army is coming from the south, and there was two natural barriers that Washington hoped to use to prevent British access to the city. One of those being the Brandywine River, the other one being the Schuylkill River. But in theory, if he could defend the, the line of the Brandywine, the Schuylkill River wouldn't play any part. So the Brandywine was a formidable obstacle. It was deep in the 18th century. It was uh, surrounded by swamplands on both sides in the 18th century. And so with no bridges, it was an obstacle. The only crossing points were at fords, 
which are pretty spread out along different points of the river between roughly the Delaware state line and about eight to nine miles north of Chad's Ford also. But they were all spread out. And so Washington's plan is basically keep the British on the other side of the river. If they can't get across the river, they can't get to Philadelphia. And so he stacks his army up, about 17,000 troops, at the fords he knew about. And that's the major issue here is he's not well informed of the land, the terrain, the populace, and he doesn't know where all the fords are. But he will stack the bulk of his army up within about a mile to the north and a mile to the south of Chad's Ford, where modern-day U.S. Route 1 crosses the Brandywine, and stacks his army up there. Now, he does have smaller detachments off to the north, but they are not watching all the fords. Um, now, the British plan... Um, is basically a repeat of of a plan they had used multiple times previously. They're going to send a diversionary force directly against Washington's main position, while a secondary force is going to make a long flanking march to come around the right rear flank of the uh, the American army. So all going to happen on September 11th, 1777. And it plays out just like the British want. Their diversionary force heads up the main road, which is modern-day U.S. Route 1, from the uh, southwest. And they're going to approach Chats Ford and demonstrate and skirmish and use artillery to make Washington think that the entire British Army is going to cross there, while their other force is going to make that 17-mile flank march. Now, throughout the day... There is intelligence reports that came into Washington were sometimes correct, sometimes incorrect about the presence of that flanking force. And, you know, Washington doesn't always interpret those reports correctly. And he waits too long and waits for confirmation by sending out additional scouting parties. And because he hesitates for so long during the day, it's basically almost too late by the time he is able to confirm the reports. So the, the, the British flanking column does get around Washington's right rear flank. And by the time he realizes what's going on, Washington does rush a sizable portion of his army, probably maybe a third of it, to the north to confront that force. And they do get in the position on, on a fairly strong hill known as Birmingham Hill, but they are heavily outnumbered by the British flanking force. And that British flanking force will, in a matter of about an hour, hour and a half, overwhelm the American force and drive the Americans off the field. So by the night of the 11th, the Americans are retreating towards Chester, Pennsylvania, to regroup and come up with a new strategy to defend Philadelphia. So it's a British success. Um, the British are sort of going to be forced to stick around for a little while to bury the dead, deal with the wounded to uh, kind of pillage the countryside for supplies they had lost during the sea voyage. But that's basically how the Battle of Brandywine is going to play out in a, in a basic way. So, um, you know, if Arch, if you got some good follow-up questions, we can go into some more detail. Michael, I was under the impression, and correct me, please, because I don't want to be accurate, that General Howe received orders to take Philadelphia fairly early in the year. Okay, well, let me start with this premise. He did not really get orders to do that. Okay. So let's back up because it's a very important point. The British plan for 1777 was supposed to be a continuation of their 1776 plan. So let's back up even a little bit farther. So the British blamed New England for causing the war. And they're not entirely wrong. And so they had this theory that if they could isolate New England from the rest of the colonies, they could suppress the rebellion. 
And so what they wanted to do is they wanted to capture the Lake Champlain-Hudson River corridor and basically split New England off from everybody else. And so the whole reason they went after New York City in 1776 was they needed to get the mouth of the Hudson River as part of that plan. And so that was the whole reason they went to New York in 76. And they were supposed to continue that operation in 77. So John Burgoyne, who's technically subordinate to William Howe, went home to England over that 76-77 winter and had discussions with the king and Lord George, George Germain, the British Secretary of Affairs for North America. And, you know, they basically agreed to the plan, but it wasn't a new plan. So John Burgoyne was supposed to come south out of Canada towards Albany, New York, and William Howe was supposed to go north up the Hudson, and they were to meet Burgoyne near Albany, you know, to complete the, the, the capture of that corridor. Now, William Howe gets informed of this, but Howe, for reasons I'm not clear about, is kind of mad. Like, he doesn't want to do that, even though that had been the plan all along. And so William Howe then writes to the king, and he says, well, that's fine and dandy, but I'm going to go capture Philadelphia, but I promise to get back in time to help John Burgoyne, which is a little disingenuous if you start to examine the decisions he makes at various points in the campaign. Almost every decision he makes made it almost impossible for him to get back to help John Burgoyne. So Hal never technically got a direct order to go capture Philadelphia. That was Hal's plan, not the king's plan. And the king only approved it under the premise that Hal would capture Philadelphia and get back in time to help John Burgoyne, which, of course, he never does. And, you know, just to play it out a little farther, Burgoyne gets captured at Saratoga. And that victory at Saratoga by the Northern Army leads to a French alliance. So you could argue that the decision to come get Philadelphia by Howe leads to the French alliance by them not being there to help John Burgoyne. Does that help? Does that explain? Yeah. Oh, it absolutely does. Was there quite a bit of animosity or jealousy between Howe and Burgoyne and the other generals in the British Army? Um, That's an excellent question. It's hard to say, because all we have written by John Burgoyne is his official correspondence. So we have his writings to the king. We have his testimony before Parliament when he went home after his resignation at the end of the campaign. But we don't have his personal papers. His personal papers were burned by his wife after he passed away. So we don't really know what Hal's thinking. My personal take on it He's miffed that Burgoyne went home and talked to the king without consulting with himself first. Mm. Can't prove that, but circumstantial evidence leads me to think he purposely left Burgoyne hanging up there, um, which is a pretty bold move when you're a general in the British Army and you're, you're serving the king of England. Again, I can't prove it because we don't really know his personal thoughts, but I mean, every decision he made made it impossible for him to help Burgoyne. So it's almost like he never intended to go help him. Michael, why did General Howe bring his troops on ships rather than bringing them down through New Jersey and Pennsylvania? There's another one of those mysteries, and I think it plays into not helping Burgoyne. So here's an interesting thing. So to cross the Delaware River in the 18th century, you would have needed boats, and or a pontoon bridge or some form of a floating bridge that you would have to bring with you, like you would see with later armies. And they did fabricate a floating bridge wagon train, for lack of a better term, or pontoon train during the winter of 77. 
or early 1777. And what's weird is when they go out maneuvering in northern New Jersey in the spring, because there is some maneuvering in northern New Jersey trying to get Washington out of the hills around Morristown, because obviously the fastest way to Philadelphia is directly overland. Right, sure. When they went on those maneuvers, they didn't bring the pontoon train with them. Because if he had broken through Washington's army or pushed him out of the way or whatever and gotten to Delaware, he wouldn't have been able to get across. So it almost makes you think he never was going to cross that way. And then because he didn't bring the pontoons with him. And, and then he, he goes and gets on the ships anyway. So I don't, again, can't prove it, but I think he just was putting on a show and he was going to use the fleet from the very beginning, no matter what. And then basically went on and abandoned Burgoyne. And when General Howe landed in Elton, what took him that length of time to get from Elton all the way up to Brandywine Creek or River? Okay, that's a good question. They have a logistical problem when they land. Because during the six-week voyage to get to outside modern Elkton, Maryland, they had lost most of their livestock, died on the ships, and were thrown overboard. They had also ran out of food in many cases, and the guys were very sick from the long voyage. So when they landed, they had a logistical problem. Without livestock, they can't move their wagons and artillery. So there are multiple times throughout the campaign that they have to just stop wherever they are for four or five days at a time and raid the countryside to get the supplies and livestock they need. And so the reason it's going to take them, I'm trying to do the math real quick, the... 11, well, it takes them nine days to get it up to the Brandywine battlefield in the September, and then another six, so it takes them 15 days to get up there. I mean, that's all because of logistics. They they stayed outside Elkton for a few days gathering supplies, and then when they moved up towards into northern Delaware, they're going to stop again for about three days. It's all about getting supplies and livestock is why they're moving so slow. And Michael, it seems that General Washington really did not do his homework when he set up at Brandywine, not knowing often where the forges were. And it seems like General Howe did his homework and had fairly good intelligence coming up to Brandywine, knowing where he could flank Washington on those northern fjords. Is that accurate? Yeah, no, I, it's accurate. So just to add some detail to that, um, southeastern Pennsylvania was a heavily loyalist population or Quaker population. And the Quakers are neutral. They're pacifists. For the most part, they're trying to not get involved in the war, including providing intelligence. Um, I mean, there's exceptions to that, but for the most part, they're not going to help either army. Now, there's a lot of loyalists, though. Um, one very specific loyalist, Joseph Galloway, who was the Speaker of the Pennsylvania Assembly prior to the war and friends with Franklin before the war, he is going to be an adamant loyalist, and he joins the Howells, the Howells meaning William and his brother Richard, who's the admiral of the fleet, in New York to guide and provide support for them. And so when they get into southeastern Pennsylvania, Galloway is going to recruit locals to act as guides for the British Army and to guide them on the roads and to locate the fords for them. So Howell is very well informed when he gets into Pennsylvania. Washington, for reasons I will never understand, does not get anybody local to help him. Now, again, there's a lot of loyalists and a lot of Quakers, but there were men serving in his army that lived within just a few miles of the battlefield that seemed to have not been consulted at all. 
I mean, the most prominent of which is Anthony Wayne, who commands one of his divisions, lived, I don't know the exact distance, but, I don't know, five, six miles from the battlefield. It's not like he didn't know the area. And so that's one of the mysteries of the battle. He does not get locals or, or seek the help of locals, it seems, to identify the road networks and, and the terrain and the fords. So that on the morning of the battle, he is, at least from my take, he's fully unprepared for the shifting situations of the battlefield. And Michael, with General Howe, who were the other major players on the attack of Brandywine from the British? Okay, the two main players, or his two main subordinates, are Charles Cornwallis, who uh, is going to go on, of course, to surrender his army at Yorktown much later in the war, but it's the same guy that surrenders at Yorktown. Um, At this point, he just commands a division. And then the other major subordinate is a Hessian officer named Wilhelm von Knipphausen, who's a senior Hessian officer in North America, and he commands the other division for Hal. So Knipphausen is going to get the responsibility of the day of the battle to make the diversion. He's the guy that's going to approach Washington's main lines at Chad's Ford and put on a big show as that diversion. And then Cornwallis will ride with Hal and be in charge of the flanking column. Michael, you believe it from General Howe on Breed's Hill, where we rarely, if ever, see him with a frontal assault on Washington troops again. Is that what motivated him to do a lot of flanking maneuvers against the Continental Army? Yeah, it does. So while he does not actually command the assaults at Breed's Hill, he witnessed the whole thing. And yes, the British are victorious that day, but they suffered heavy casualties. And that's the issue. It was really hard to replace these British troops. They had this archaic recruitment process, this archaic training process, all of which had to take place in the British Isles. And then once that process was over, you had to transport them across the ocean as replacements. So it could take months, if not years, to get quality replacements into the British ranks. And so not just how, it's it's all of them. They're very hesitant to make an attack that will they know will result in heavy casualties. So they're going to do everything they can to limit that. And that's the whole point of these flanking maneuvers. If you come in on your enemy's flank, you only have to battle a portion of their army as opposed to when you do a frontal assault, you're basically going to have to battle their entire army, which would, of course, result in higher casualties. Right. So he he avoids that. Frequent. I mean, Brandywine is the sixth time he used that maneuver against Washington. It wasn't a new tactic. Now, Washington, for whatever reason, never figures it out. So it wasn't a new concept, but it all had to do with the difficulty of replacing their casualties from the British Isles. And, Michael, with about four minutes that we have left, right after Brandywine, what was the maneuvering of the British Army and Washington's Continental Army? You said after Brandywine. Is that what you said? Right after Brand, yes. Okay. So, again, the British stayed there for about five days, doing multiple things, regrouping, um, raiding the countryside. The most significant thing they did over those five days is they sent a column down the Wilmington, Delaware, to occupy Wilmington to create a port for the British fleet to dock when they returned from the Chesapeake Bay. Now, Washington moves a lot. Because he is now out of position for protecting Philadelphia, and he needs to get into a new position to defend the city, which is going to be the Schuylkill River. So the day after the battle, they retreat north of the Schuylkill and move out to what was then a village of Germantown to resupply and regroup. 
Then on September 14th, they're going to recross the Schuylkill River and move into what we now call the Great Valley, along where modern U.S. Route 30 is, so that by the morning of September 16th, they're moving into a position to block access to a road juncture that has roads leading to all the fords on the Schuylkill. Washington wants to block British access to that road junction. That same day, September 16th, is the day the British leave the Brandywine Battlefield. And unbeknownst to either army, they are using the exact same two roads to move towards that road intersection, and they end up running into each other. I mean, that's how you get something called the Battle of the Clouds. And it's basically a couple separate skirmishes that never evolve into a major conflict because a huge tropical rainstorm breaks out, hence Battle of the Clouds ruining the ammunition of both armies. So that's five days after Brandywine. That's actually how my second book starts is with the Battle of the Clouds. And from Brandywine, I mean, we see what was the reaction from the Continental Congress when Washington has this major defeat in Philadelphia Falls? Uh, Congress is not happy. Um, now, Philadelphia won't fall for another couple of weeks, but Congress is not happy. They are actually going to blame one of Washington's subordinates, John Sullivan. He's eventually going to have to face a court-martial because of it. Uh, Now, I don't blame Sullivan, and in fact, the court-martial will find him innocent, but John Sullivan will get the wrath of Congress, hence the court-martial, but he will survive that effort. People in our area, Michael, they go and visit the Brandywine Battlefield. Please share with our listeners the locations and sites that they need to see. Just going to the visitor center is not going to give them an idea. Yeah, the thing that's kind of confusing about Brandywine is that where the state park is today, the 52 acres, I think it is, really very little, if any, of the fighting actually happened where the park is. But there is a lot of preserved land in the last 10 years or so where you can get on the spots where fighting actually happened. The most prominent of which is around the Birmingham Meeting House and Birmingham Hill, which are a couple miles north of the visitor center, and they're publicly accessible. There are walking trails now, and that's where the heaviest and most significant elements of the fighting took place is up around Birmingham Meeting House and a series of trails and parks that the township has created on Birmingham Hill. Like Again, like I said, it's just, they're about a couple miles north of Route 1 and where the visitor center is. Michael, share with our listeners, please, because listeners, I have been on one of my, well, several of Michael's interpretation tours of Randy Wine and Paoli. Where could our listeners contact you personally if they're interested in a tour and where can they purchase your books? Well, the easiest way to get a copy of one of the books, you know, you can go on Amazon. They're available on Amazon. You could get them through Barnes and Noble. That's the easiest way. You could get them directly from my publisher, too, which is Savis Beattie. They're based out of California, but Amazon's probably the easiest. And then to uh, reach out about finding out about tours, easiest way to do that is probably through my blog, which let me get my business card so I can read it off here. <laughs> so I have a website. It's called Rev War Ramblings, so R-E-V, Rev, you know, Rev War, and then Ramblings, all one word, and that's .wordpress.com, and then you can contact me through the blog Periodically, I do advertise public tours, but I do private tours, too. Well, listeners, we're up against time. Listeners, I will tell you again that you need to read both of Michael's books. I'm excited about his new book coming out. They are detailed, give you tremendous information of Brandywine and Germantown. 
but it's readable and understandable by the average American who doesn't know much about either one of these battles. So, Michael, thank you for sharing. And thank you for your expertise and your study to bring a lot of the American Revolution back to the forefront in American history. You are doing a great service to all of us Americans. So thank you for doing what you're doing. Well, thank you, Arch. Thank you. I appreciate that. And thank you for teaching those high school kids. God bless you every day. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So we want to continue this conversation with Michael in our next show on the Germantown and leading up to Germantown. So we want to thank Michael again. Please, listeners, okay, purchase his books. See if you can get Michael to do a tour. The knowledge you will get, it's immeasurable. So again, thank you, Michael, for coming today and sharing with us. This is 1180 AM WFYL, working for your liberty.